The Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Camphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, hello. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name's Carol. I work here. I'm the curate here. I've been here for 49 weeks. I know that because I'm getting priested in three weeks' time. So, no, in two weeks' time, which was a week before I was deacon. Anyway, a bit of Anglicanism for you. Uh, Let's pray just before I begin. Father, thank you for the gift of Jesus. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would speak to us tonight. Open our hearts, Lord, to hear your words. Amen. Have you ever had to wait for something? I, to be honest, I'm not good at it at all. And while you're waiting, your imagination fills in all the gaps, doesn't it? You picture the scene, you plan it, you discuss it, you wonder. It takes on a life of its own. In your imagination, it looks like one thing. And then when it comes, for all your planning, it's something completely different. My suspicion is that a lot of wedding days turn out like that. 
Certainly after waiting what seemed like a lifetime for motherhood, I was taken completely by surprise. I thought I would be a fantastic earth mother, calm and wise. Then the raw and passionate emotions grab you and nothing is ever the same again. Despite being a trained midwife and a health visitor, I found myself panicking over my newborns as if they were made of exquisite china. The disciples had been told to wait. It must have been excruciating wait for them. They had seen Jesus in his resurrection appearances. They had replaced Judas. They must have had an idea that what was coming might be fairly big. They perhaps were waiting with a sense of excitement and anticipation, and perhaps a little fear. They must have realized by now that life with Jesus was never going to be predictable. But I bet they weren't expecting what was described in our reading today. This is an incredibly vivid passage. Can you imagine being there? A blowing of a violent wind filling the whole house, tongues of fire, and an anointing of the Holy Spirit that meant they could speak in many different languages. It must have been quite terrifying and incredible. As you know, I spent some of last week in rural France, where one tractor constitutes the onset of the rush hour, and to see two is major congestion. It was wonderful. I have to admit to being impressed by a nonchalance and ambivalence of the hospitable and very welcoming French towards tourism that allows the construction of a baseball pitch in the middle of medieval battlements. I also can't help feeling a bit of admiration for a culture that, despite the clear ravages of a Europe-wide depression, manages an economy that supports both a patisserie and at least one chocolate shop in each small town. My kind of economy. It gave me a rare and fantastic opportunity to mull over what it was I had to say today. There's a huge amount in this passage, but I wanted to concentrate on one or two main points and perhaps spend a little longer on them. It seems to me that one of the major themes in this passage is experience of the presence of God, and that may be different for all of us. The Spirit came as noise and fire. It certainly heralded the birth of the church in a way that could not be ignored, calling it into relationship and radical discipleship, risk and encounter. A church that declares Christ's resurrection to the world. Perhaps like you, like me, sorry, you think this sounds exciting, something you long for an experience that would change your faith and prayer life forever. And perhaps it would. But let's not forget that this happened after the crucifixion, after the agony that Peter must have felt after denying Jesus three times, after waiting and wondering. I've been struck by the similarities with the descriptions at the beginning of Ezekiel, where a terrifying wind precedes the appearance of fiery beings. 
This heralds the commission of Ezekiel to a costly and painful ministry to his own people who would reject and scorn him, a people who God describes as hard-hearted. Jacob walked with a limp after his encounter with an angelic presence. There is a cost to deep encounter with the Holy Spirit that it seems sometimes a little unfashionable to talk about. In order to discover the blessing and anointing that comes with sustained and deep prayer, are we willing to pay the costs? This passage in Acts is one that's divided opinion in the church for centuries. Was this a once and for all pouring out of the Spirit, an anomaly of history? Or is this a pattern? Should we be expecting signs and wonders as part of our normal Christian life? It can be said that it's possible to read Acts in three ways, depending on your tradition. It can be read as an extension of the Old Testament Jewish faith, the Israel of God, which can be interpreted for the Catholic tradition. It can be read as a church which is the interpretation of the fellowship of all believers, a more Protestant interpretation. Or we can look at the church developing as a community of the Spirit, as described in our reading today, and interpreted as Pentecostal understanding. So we have the Catholic, Protestant, or Pentecostal church. Which is it? And what does today's reading point us to? Well, I suggest we can have all three. There's no need to draw battle lines however God speaks today. We had read verse 6 of chapter 2. Each one heard them speaking in his own language. We don't have to limit God. This is a God who loves us so much that when we ask, he will meet us where we are and so that we can understand him. The point is that we sometimes think the Holy Spirit speaks to us this particular way, and of course, that must be the right way, the way we will always hear God. And our understanding and expectation is limited by our experience and our tradition. But surely an incarnational God will say something different in every situation. The one thing we can be certain of is that the Holy Spirit is not an optional extra. There was no one saying, this really doesn't work for me at Pentecost. Chris Russell, vicar at St. Lawrence's Church in Reading, puts it this way. Never second guess God. Never enter a room and think you know already what God would have you be, or say, or pray. Never assume what word you should bring, what prayer you should pray, what support you should give. It will be different for each situation. Be alive to him. I could add, of course, that we should not only be listening to the Holy Spirit, but also to each other and to our situations. Chris Russell again. If we're to listen to the Holy Spirit well, we need to be present, really present to the moment, to where and who we are as we pray. We need to live an integrated life and be of use in the here and now. 
I often find myself giving God the excuse that I would be just the best Christian if it wasn't for everyone else around me and all the pressures I'm under. That I would be an on-fire Christian if it wasn't for how tired I was or if I had more time to pray, if I didn't have the annoying habits I have, and if I had an amazingly built, beautiful chapel for my own personal use. Oh, and a quiet day every week. But it's precisely in my life as it is now that God calls me. My wrong assumption is too often that I could best follow Jesus in some other life, in some other place, in some other church. But it is in this life that he calls me to follow and live and glorify him. At Pentecost, God called the disciples to preach where they were to those that were nearest them. There is a reasonable assumption, though, that God is calling us to change the situations we find ourselves in, to reach out to others, to extend our grasp. God always longs to bring transformation and difference, as he did at Pentecost. But what God longs to bring us is possible in the lives we lead. It doesn't involve us morphing into different people or having different personalities or having a better bank account. This is not a call to live a different life, but to, to, live, with a, um, but to live the life you have differently. To live it not with a restlessness to escape the ordinariness of life, but to find God right there in the middle of where you are. Imagining not having to long for God beyond the horizon, but being able to see him before your eyes. And that is exactly what happened at Pentecost. People responded to the Holy Spirit with boldness and surely a deeper commitment to pray. God is always present when we pray, but a challenge thrown out by the previous Archbishop of Canterbury someone who I know came in for huge amounts of criticism, but whose intellect, understanding, and spirituality were beyond question bigger and deeper than most of us can only dream of. He challenged us to be truly present when we pray. It's quite possible to kid others that we are there, but our minds can be on what's happening next. The shopping, where's a good restaurant, the conversation you want to have with someone afterwards, those shoes you wish you'd bought, you fill in the gaps. So what is this prayer? And what is it the Holy Spirit is calling us to? While away, I had the opportunity to read a book by Henry Nguyen, a Dutch Catholic priest who's written several books, who, if you haven't discovered him yet, is well worth looking at. Perhaps you could get one for your holiday reading. In his book, Return of the Prodigal Son, he describes prayer as the place where I am held safe in the embrace of an all-loving father who calls me by name and says, you are my beloved child, on you my favor rests. Prayer is the place where we can taste the joy and the peace that are not of this world. In a later chapter, he talks about leaning into the Father's chest and listening to his heartbeat. It sounds great, 
But what if, like me, you have to work out exactly what that means? Prayer can be difficult. While on retreat once, I asked the advice of a deeply spiritual and elderly nun whom I admired terribly about prayer as I find my mind starts to wander and I think about almost everything but leaning into the father's chest. She took a few minutes and then answered that she too finds it difficult to concentrate for long. I found that really encouraging, if a little surprising. When you learn a new language as I'm sure the teachers among you know. You learn to pick up the song, the lilt of the language, before you master the vocabulary. That's how children learn speech. You may have heard a tot pick up this pattern way before language appears. Then, as you learn some vocabulary, the only way to improve is to launch in and give it a go. I wonder if prayer language is not like this. We need to try to just give it a go. When I first went to work in Israel, I struggled with the Arabic language. There is a story that my daughter loves to hear about when I was trying to comfort a young Arabic mother during a really long and difficult labor. I muddled my language, and instead of telling her, don't worry, it'll soon be over, I managed to blurt out, don't worry, you'll soon be dead. I will never forget the look of horror on her face or the hilarity of the Arabic auxiliary I was working with who thankfully put my error right. The point is clear. We need to give prayer the time and effort to be willing to get it wrong in order to improve. The disciples had served a three-year strange, painful and costly apprenticeship with Jesus before Pentecost. And many of them would be called to martyrdom. They were to learn about the power of the Holy Spirit and to apply what happened at Pentecost. For us today, it seems that it's the church that is willing to die to worldly standards, that will take the risks, that will be willing to go against the conventional wisdom, that will know the power of Christ's resurrection and the Holy Spirit. It is the church in prayer that will know encounter with God. It may be hated and persecuted for its revolutionary lifestyle, exposing the hollow values and destructive selfishness of the society it seeks to serve. But as at Pentecost, it certainly cannot be ignored. And it starts with a willingness to encounter the Holy Spirit in prayer. Amen.